Serbian folk song sung in defiance on a street outside an Australian quarantine hotel. Yes, it's been a strange week in the world of tennis. The story began when Serbian tennis superstar Novak Djokovic was granted a medical exemption to enter Australia and compete in the 2022 Australian Open. The defending champ shared the news on social media following months of uncertainty over his vaccination status. The decision was greeted with anger by lockdown-weary Australians. He's been exempt and can play, and I think it's an absolute disgrace, and I won't be watching it. On the issue of Mr Djokovic. Prime Minister Scott Morrison also weighed in. Rules are rules, and there are no special cases. When Djokovic landed, he was detained and his visa revoked. Now it was Serbia's turn to be angry. Hundreds in the Serbian capital, Belgrade, protest the detention of their home hero, Novak Djokovic, on the other side of the globe. After spending a weekend in immigration detention, Djokovic successfully appealed the decision, and now he is once again the bookie's favourite to win the Australian Open. Meanwhile, his brother George has said the debate was not about tennis, it was about justice. But Novak is only fighting for uh, the liberty of choice. The story has already exposed the social and political divisions caused by the pandemic, and it's thrown a spotlight on Australia's tough border policies. And it's not over yet. I'm Sarah Chapalak, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how Novak Djokovic's vaccine scepticism fueled an international sporting scandal. Johnny Waterson is a sports writer with the Irish Times and has followed Djokovic's tennis career over the years. Johnny, to start with, can you take us back to last week when this whole Novak Djokovic Australian Open saga began? When did we first learn that Djokovic might be having issues getting into Australia and competing in the tournament? It came up around January the 4th and 5th. On January the 4th, Djokovic, who let it be known really for the last two years that he's against vaccination... He said he was travelling to Australia on a medical exemption. Now, there's only two ways to get into Australia. That's a medical exemption or you're vaccinated. So when he said that, the former medical association vice president, a guy called Stephen Parnas, said he was appalled at what message this was sending out to Australians who'd been in, in lockdown for quite a long time. And Victoria particularly, I think it was 270 days they're in lockdown with about an hour a day for exercise. So it was pretty severe. And so even before the Djokovic controversy began, you had a a medical expert in Australia saying, this is the wrong message to be sending out to people. That was the Wednesday. By Thursday, they had cancelled his visa. And the sweetheart deal he had done with Tennis Australia and the Victoria State had seemed to have just fallen apart because the Border Patrol, who took him in, put him through the questions, said, no, you don't meet the requirements for us. We're cancelling your visa. And so that's when it started. And as you've mentioned, we already knew before all this that Djokovic was against the COVID-19 vaccine. What has he been saying publicly about vaccination over the past two years? I was completely sceptical about it. He's been open about that. It's, it's, uh, Djokovic is into conspiracy theories. He's a, he's a strange sort of guy. And he's actually used a sort of this friction he has with people and fans to, to motivate him to play better sometimes. He's one of these people who doesn't need the comforts of, say, Nadal and Federer are, are really liked by fans. They're in a very comfortable space with their fans and, and, and with the media. Djokovic occupies a completely different spot. He's always having issues with people. 
his extreme nationalism in Serbia, greats with people, his conspiracy theories, his anti-vax, but he's always been like this. And he's for the last two years, he's probably been the most famous anti-vaxxer in the world, I would say. Certainly if you're, if you're a sports person, he's the most high-profile anti-vaxxer for the last two years. You said there that people like Nadal are more conscious of, I guess, their public image and being liked and that Djokovic doesn't really care. But have has this kind of stance against the vaccine affected his career at all so far over the last two years? No, it hasn't affected his career at all. He's on the cusp of becoming the best tennis player in the history of the sport. With Nadal and Federer, they both have, they, three of them have 20 grand slams. So in terms of his success, it hasn't made any difference. And there are people who will argue that he needs that friction. He, he, he needs that, something to hit against to get him up to the level of tennis he's capable of playing at. And so over the last 15 years, no, it, it, it hasn't affected him in a negative way. In fact, I would say it helps him. So taking a step back for a minute before Djokovic even tried to travel to Australia, he and his manager said he had tested positive for COVID-19 on December 16th and have also posted documents online as proof of this. People have started questioning the veracity of these PCR test results. Why is this? They did because he was behaving around those dates, December 16, 17, 18, as though nothing had happened. He was tested on December 16th. He knew apparently later that evening that it was a positive test. Yet the following day, he was at an award ceremony, not wearing a mask, mixing with people, hugging people. So either he is contemptuous of the whole idea of spreading a virus or the PCR test he's talking about didn't happen. Now, you have to take him at face value that he took a PCR test. And then why was he walking around the next day? Why was he involved in in giving out prizes and hugging people without a mask? So, you know, you can't have it both ways in that respect. Although I think at the hearing for the visa, that didn't come into it. The hearing at the visa was just, did you pass your PCR test? And that was it. The whole idea that he didn't engage in any social distancing once he knew he was positive. It's just another disturbing aspect of the way he's been behaving. So then Djokovic arrives in Australia in the early hours of Thursday, January 6th, which was last week. What do we know about what happened when he reached immigration control? He basically said that he had the credentials to get in because he was told that by Tennis Australia, a guy called Tylee, and by the state of Victoria... His lawyers said he had the medical exemption because of the December 16th PCR test, which showed he was positive. But the border officials at that point said that he failed to provide the appropriate evidence for entry. And so they revoked his visa and then it went into a legal dispute from there. And then the media has spoken about how after that Djokovic was sent to an immigration detention centre and the description was that he was locked up. His own mother said Australia was keeping him like a prisoner. Last 24 hours that they are keeping him as a prisoner. It's just not fair. It's not human. Where exactly was he and what do we know about the conditions of the place where he was staying? Yeah, he, he was in a pretty basic hotel, the Park Hotel in Carlton, which is, uh, and you would know more about this than most people, it, it's where they the keep refugees and Normally, those hotels aren't great hotels. 
report in The Guardian said they'd shared kitchen. Not anything terrible, but also not what a guy who's won about 200 million Australian dollars is used to. Number one tennis player in the world. You know, he would hire a house. He would have his team there for the entire stay in Australia. Uh, he'd have chauffeur-driven cars to and from the tennis. You know, that's his, his lifestyle is is a polar opposite of what he was living in. So in that respect, it wasn't what he was used to, but it's what refugees get. He wasn't kept there against his will. And I think enough politicians said he's he's welcome to go home. He is free to leave at any time that he chooses to do so, and Border Force will actually facilitate uh, that. But he didn't want to go home. He wanted to stay. So that's where he was put. Then on Monday, Djokovic won this appeal against the revoking of his visa and the Australian Federal Circuit Court ordered that he be released immediately. Johnny, how did the court arrive at this decision? He won this case because the border guards didn't proceed correctly. There was a procedural issue and the court sees procedural issues as very important. And so the judge rightly threw it out and said, no, you didn't go about this the right way. You interviewed him and you were unreasonable in not allowing him to reply and give him time and let his lawyers have time. So that procedure was breached, and that's why he won the case. At the same time, there's still a possibility that politicians can say you're not getting a visa anyway, and that's part of the process. So while he got through this court case on a procedural issue, he's not totally home and dry just yet. And as you say, despite this win in court, Djokovic's fate could yet be determined by Australia's immigration minister, Alex Hawke, who has the power to again cancel this visa and deport him. Do you think he'll do that or do you think Djokovic will stay and play? He's like the emperor in the Colosseum. He's going to turn his thumb down or turn it up. Novak will play or he won't play. You know, that's where it is now. He's just got to read the room properly. And that's his problem. I really think if... Alex Hawke will be taking his his guidance from the higher-ups in the government. And again, it's reading what the people in Australia feel. If Djokovic plays, what, what trouble is going to accrue from that? What are people going to do when he steps on court? Is that going to cause any anxiety or aggro on the streets? There's already been a little bit. So they have to weigh that all up. I really don't know what way it's going to come down. Um, It's a lose-lose for everyone anyway. Uh, I don't think whatever decision Alex Hawke makes, it's going to be the wrong decision because they've allowed it to unspool to to where it is now, which is a a complete shit show is what it is. And there's no winners going to come out of it. Do you think the public perception of what's been happening over the last week has changed at all? I mean, you mentioned the kind of the Serb support and the people protesting outside the hotel. But initially, it seemed like most people were against Djokovic on this and said that he had brought this upon himself. But in the past few days, since the transcript of the immigration interaction has been released, have feelings about how he was treated changed at all? I think people were divided on him even before that. Uh, what you also have to bake into the Djokovic cake is that as a 12-year-old, he lived in Belgrade and he was there when NATO bombed Belgrade in 1999. So he and his siblings, you know, suffered that trauma, suffer, suffered that sort of horrifying experience of being in your city and it's been bombed from the sky by NATO. So he would have seen Serb army as the people who protected him. And he sort of hasn't moved from that. And he, he sort of allied himself with Serb nationalists, uh, Milorad Dodic is one of them who's a, a successionist. He's a genocide denier. 
I think he's now sanctioned by the US, but Djokovic doesn't mind aligning himself with those people. For want of a better phrase, he hangs around with them. He doesn't mind being photographed with them. He's making speeches when they're there. And it's just part of his whole persona of really sort of thriving on sort of the friction he can create, whether it's his politics at home or his anti-vax stance or his conspiracy theories. You know, you can purify water through emotion, stuff like that. People believe it, but it sort of makes him out to be a, a... a character who can polarise people. And I think that's what he's done from the beginning in Australia. I think people were fairly quickly on one side or the other. Johnny, what are the wider implications of what's been happening over the past week when it comes to future sporting events? Will Djokovic or any other unvaccinated tennis players, for that matter, have trouble competing in the French Open, for example, in May, in a country where French President Emmanuel Macron is taking an increasingly hardline approach towards unvaccinated people. And then, of course, there's Wimbledon, there's the US Open. And then the next step is other sporting events like soccer and the upcoming World Cup in Qatar. How much more of this are we going to see? Qatar is a place where you have to be vaccinated to get into the country, but FIFA are are already negotiating with the Qataris that players can get medical exemptions, as Djokovic did. And we see where that went. So certainly FIFA don't want the absolutism of a vaccine. They want it to be based on testing because there are a lot of football players who aren't vaccinated and for lots of different reasons. And they don't want a situation like this occurring. But, I mean, Macron's hard line suggests that you will have to be vaccinated before you go to Roland Garros, which takes place in June. I think what we can expect is more confusion. You know, even at a local level in Ireland, Leinster were prevented from going to Montpellier to play a rugby match in the European Cup, despite the fact that they had experts telling the French and telling the organising authorities, the EPCR, that the team were absolutely clear to go. They had no issues with COVID, but still the match was cancelled. Because different countries have different attitudes and, and different systems governing this, I can see confusion all the way right up to November when the World Cup starts, I think, at the end of November, almost a year away. I don't think anything is clear. Coming up. Irish Times business journalist and avid tennis fan Laura Slattery talks about how the sport has fared during the pandemic and whether Djokovic could win the Australian Open if he does get to play. So, Laura, you write about business and the media for us at the Irish Times, but you're also a massive tennis fan. So that's why we have you here today. How did you become such a fan of tennis and and do you play yourself? Well, I do play myself very badly. In fact, I'm playing tonight. Um, But um, I became a fan of tennis, I think, because, you know, I'm I'm a child of the late 70s. Um, I grew up in the 80s when Wimbledon was dominated by two brilliant female players, Chris Everett and uh, Martina Navratilova. They always reached the final. Martina Navratilova uh, sort of almost inevitably won. Three championship points for Miss Navratilova. And I became interested in their rivalry. They were actually very good friends off the court. And the whole kind of, I suppose, the sort of almost showbiz aspect of tennis, 
but it's a brilliant sport you know it combines strength and power with the kind of finesse and skill but it has that individual kind of quality uh, where you're very exposed on the tennis court you're being watched it's a spectacle there's huge mental pressure and you see the sort of the mental fortitude of some of the top players you know uh, coming together at the right time um, and they're, they're essentially playing chess with with rackets it just really caught my attention at a young age and even more so now in the last decade I've been um, watching watching it as much as, as I can. How much do you think COVID has impacted tennis and tennis tournaments over the past two years? Yeah, it's impacted it loads. You know, tennis is such an international sport. It's played by people from all over the world. And it's a moving tour, it goes from country to country. That's really not ideal in a pandemic, flying in and out of everywhere. Some breaking news, and it is not unexpected. And it is that uh, Wimbledon, is now cancelled. The so the tour was paused essentially for five months. There was a lot of people twiddling their thumbs, doing zooms. The French Open was delayed, uh, but then the, you know it, it, it did. The show did get back on the road. At first, there was a very sterile period. Um, the U.S. Open in, in 2020, they had no crowds. Uh, the atmosphere was lacking. It is a spectator sport. The, the crowd does make a huge difference, I think, to the outcome of matches. Some players were, you know, understandably depressed. Others, you know, just grew fatigued quite quickly of the, the stress of constant testing. I think some of them genuinely had it, did have a concern about the vaccine. Where do I fit it into my schedule? You know, where do I get it even? When does it become available? Is it going to affect me in, you know, in the immediate future? M- many, many more players were had to drop out of tournaments because they hadn't been vaccinated and they contracted COVID at the last minute. So it's been a, it's been a difficult r- uh, run back for tennis at the same time. It's interesting, actually, on an amateur level, tennis has flourished because it's possible to play, you know, while socially distancing and it's possible to play outdoors at a time when some other uh, sporting activities are indoors and unavailable to people. So in a way, it's been incredible, really, how often tennis has been on the the front pages of newspapers and um, on the news headlines over the past year. And I think that that's almost a, a consequence of what an unusual pandemic it has had. So bringing it back to what's been going on over the last week, what did you think when you first read or heard that Djokovic had been stopped from entering Australia? I mean, look, I don't agree with Djokovic's stance. I think he should have been vaccinated or just decided not to play. But there's no doubt that when he got on a plane he sent an Instagram post saying, let's go to 2022. He thought he thought he was doing the right thing and, and following the rules as he was told. And everything that's happened since, I think, has reflected badly, not just on him, but on Tennis Australia. And, and then the miscommunication, I think, between them and various uh, Victorian uh, authorities. And then the, the, the sheer politics between the Victorian government and the Canberra government. To put it in, a, in sort of trite terms, it's a really bad look um, for Australia. And as we now know, Djokovic went on to win his appeal over the visa refusal. And his younger brother, who's been speaking a lot to the media, he said in a press conference in Belgrade that Novak had always advocated for freedom of choice, nothing more. While his father said his successful appeal against deportation was a victory for human rights and for free speech. What kind of message does that send, do you think, Laura, to the general public at a time when there's already such heated divisions between those who are in favour of taking the COVID-19 vaccine and those who are against it? 
Novak Djokovic has been in the past a dangerous role model on occasion. And I think this instant risks kind of cementing his position as a kind of a hero of the anti-vaccine campaign. It's it's very queasy. It's a very queasy situation and a, a, as a tennis fan to have the men's tennis number one at the forefront of that discussion. It, it's not a good look for tennis. It's not a good look for Djokovic. I don't see, no matter which tournaments in the future and which countries have a vaccinated players only policy, I don't see him caving and, and getting the vaccine. He's a very stubborn individual and he, I don't think he's just going to change his mind, no matter how difficult they make it for him to get that next uh, slam on the board. I mean, there's no doubt as well that Djokovic has been demonised internationally over the last week throughout this entire saga. Do you think he's been treated unfairly? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's probably a more nuanced situation than perhaps, you know, some of the snark that we see um, suggests. But the bottom line is he, he should he should get vaccinated and he, he or, as I said, or, 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 or just stay at home. But there were others to blame in this situation. And he did think that he was doing the you know, he was fulfilling the requirements that had been laid out. Otherwise, like who would get on a plane if to be turned back like that and to be detained? It just assuming that he, he does end up in the draw for the Australian Open, but his preparation has been completely derailed. So none of this is ideal and whether or not it's fair, it's it's probably not. Uh, fair on the other players who complied. 97 of the top 100 men's players are vaccinated and 96 of the top women uh, players are vaccinated. Why they were able to comply and he wasn't is a big question. So how much do you think this will really affect Djokovic? If he does play, will he win? Do you think? Um, I don't think he will, (laughs) which is a big call to say because he is, um, you know, it's very hard to argue against his track record. He won three of the four slams last year. He's sitting on 20. He's going for history. Nobody's won 21. I think even before this, I think the favourite was probably the world number two, Daniel Medvedev, who's a sort of a mad, bad, dangerous to know in his own way, but in a much more fun way, mostly. Uh, he's a, He won the US Open, beat Djokovic uh, handily there and became the first man from outside the big three to beat a member of the big three in a final, slam final, uh, for five years. So it was a much needed um, injection of new blood into men's tennis. There's other people, there's um, a guy called Alexander Zverev who would need a whole podcast on his own right, in his own right. And there's a lovely guy called Steph Tsitsipas, but he's a little bit injured. Men's tennis is, is at a crossroads and it'll be interesting to see, you know, when the big three do finally all retire and Djokovic will probably be the last of the three based on age to do that. You know, with the next generation of players, are they going to capture the same excitement and attention that uh, the people who've dominated the games for the last 20 years have done? Laura, thanks so much. Thanks, Erica. That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Johnny Waterson and Laura Slattery. Today's episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan. In the News will be back on Friday.